Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. One of my tenets in this book is that revolutions may begin with poor, but they don't really get going, and they don't really accomplish anything until the rich are involved. That's author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor Tom Shackman talking about his new book, The Founding Fortunes, How the Wealthy Paid for and Profited from America's Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode was brought to you by Casemate, publishers of The Quaker and the Gamecock, Nathaniel Green, Thomas Sumter, and The Revolutionary War for the South by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today we have a very special guest on the program, well-known author and recent Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Tom Shackman. Tom's written a lot about the founding generation, their view on the world. You'll hear him talk about it, everything from science to finance. And his new book, The Founding Fortunes, How the Wealthy Paid for and Profited from America's Revolution, is a wonderful contribution to his growing library and, of course, our growing understanding of the revolutionary period. One thing that I learned from this book, uh, and was really reinforced by my conversation with Tom, was just how important money and financial concerns were in the revolutionary era. It is not hard for us to find, maybe in popular culture, motivations or reasons for joining the revolution, maybe fighting for God and country, something heroic like that. But you don't often hear people say it was an incredible financial opportunity for the very rich and very powerful. We don't like to think that way. But wouldn't it be naive for us to today say, well, our political world is the way that it is, or decisions are made the way that they are, um, but money has nothing to do with it. Of course, we know that's nonsense. We know money has a lot to do with it, maybe everything to do with it, probably too much to do with it. And remember, we haven't changed that much since the 1770s. I mean, yes, there have been pretty drastic changes, uh, but at the core, what generates the movement in our system, right? What uh, arguments do we still have? What debates still rage? A lot of them focus around money. So Tom's book and his, by the way, article that was recently published on the Journal of the American Revolution website, www.allthingsliberty.com, is a wonderful reminder just how big that iceberg really is because we only really see the tip we know that prominent patriots were very wealthy but do we really know the whole story or as much as we could that's why tom shackman's book is so important we'll get into all this tonight for sure but for now 
sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Tom Shackman. Tom Shackman, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here, Grady. Tell us about some of your personal history. Well, since this is a podcast for the JAR, I better say that uh, I don't have a degree in history and I don't have a degree in finance. Um, I'm just a, a writer who became interested in the subject, like so many of us who uh, got to study the revolution. And one of the glories of it is there's so much material that we're able to access and be able to make ourselves into somewhat of an expert uh, on these things. And that's what I've tried to do here. This is my third book about the revolutionary era. The first one I wrote about uh, the founding fathers as scientists. And the second one I wrote about uh, how the French saved America through their interventions, uh, both financial and, and in terms of military power. And this uh, third book really grew out of that. My interest was to find out, you know, who paid for the revolution and and why don't we know more about this and the, the integration between the people who are providing the supplies and the money and the, and the pay for the soldiers and those who are fighting the battles. You've written a lot about a lot of different subjects dealing with the founding generation. What drew you to finances this time? What made you follow the money? Well, I have done some other books that, in which I have followed the money. Uh, my first book was called The Day America Crashed, which was about the 1929 crash. And I also wrote uh, a well-received book about uh, uh, the finances on a sh- one small block in New York, and also about the uh, the, the skyscraper builder. It's a book a lot about money and less about architecture than it is about money. So I, I felt comfortable going into this, the finances here. It, it, it's not high finance in the sense that, uh, of the complicated sense of today with derivatives and all sorts of uh, terminology and ways of making money and losing money. Uh, finance was rather straightforward at that time, and we, it's easy enough for us to understand it. How did most Americans view business, wealth, and finance uh, as part of the British Empire and their role in it before the Revolution? Well, first of all, we should understand that, that most of most Americans at that time uh, were engaged in a barter economy with one another, with their neighbors. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll make a pair of shoes for you if uh, you'll make a hat for me and I'll buy some corn from you, but I have to pay you in bacon. Uh, so uh, most of America was very rural, and it was engaged in that barter economy. But uh, if you wanted to make real wealth, uh, you had to trade directly with the British. And that took place mostly on the coast, and uh, mostly with people who had inherited money to start with. Certainly by the time the 1760s, 1770s come around, uh, the wealthy people are the ones who deal directly with the British. They're part of what Adam Smith would soon lame, label a mercantile system. And uh, that was the only way possible to make money because there were so many restrictions placed on Americans uh, in terms of what they could export, uh, where, how they could pay for it, all of those sorts of things. You could, you could export your apples if you grew apples, but you couldn't export apple cider because you were not really allowed to manufacture anything. You could export the trees, the tree trunks, 
as masks for ships, but you could only sell those to the British and for the price that they set, not the price that you would want. And you really couldn't export board lumber, you know, something that had been sawn and shaved several different times so that it was more of a finished product. We're not allowed to manufacture. And we're also not allowed to have any banks. And we weren't really allowed to have any corporation. And the combination of these kinds of things, which was really tremendously uh, hamstringing, uh, any any attempts to build up fortunes other than through direct trade with the British. We know now that American commerce, commerce and exportation made up a great deal of business in terms of overall wealth for the British Empire. Was there ever a sense in America that the empire needed them more than they needed the empire? I don't really think so. Nobody was really for independence at that time. Nobody wanted to be independent of the British Empire. They didn't think they could possibly make it. Other than that. What, they, what the traders wanted was much more freedom to trade. If they wanted to send a ship to France or to Spain uh, or to North Africa or, or even to places in the Caribbean that were not controlled by Great Britain, uh, they wanted to be able to do that without the British being an intermediary. And uh, that was not possible at the time. Um, as far as the ordinary Americans, they had no interest in leaving the British Empire because they didn't know what else they would do. I mean, certainly didn't want to become a part of the French Empire or the Spanish Empire. Uh, those were not uh, available to them. And independence uh, didn't seem to be a terribly good idea because they didn't know what they'd be independent from or what they might be doing. On the other side of the coin, most people were just sort of living their lives well, on their own farms and, uh, um, you know, being able to cope for themselves. And uh, these, these were what they call subsistence plus farms. And that doesn't mean just a little bit above poverty. What it means is that you're producing enough on your farm so that you have a little excess that you can sell or barter uh, to other people to get some things that you might like to have to make life a little more, more pleasant. By now, of course, we know the standard narrative of the events that lead to the revolution. Uh, in your opinion, from a financial perspective, which British legislative and policy measures do you think most led to rebellion? Well, we have a wonderful slogan that comes from that town, which time, which is, you know, uh, no taxation without representation. And uh, this is actually a political statement. And uh, we uh, tend to think now that if only the British had been smart enough to allow us to have some representatives in the Parliament, uh, the whole thing could have been avoided. But that's not really the case, because the taxation without representation idea is really sort of the tip of an economic iceberg, that, uh, some of which I just described in, in the previous answer, the no bank, no corporations, all of these kinds of things. So there were increasing problems with... with uh, America's growth, uh, because it was so constrained. Uh, the British really wanted to have us subjugated financially, uh, infantilized in a certain sense, so that so we couldn't grow up. And some of the people who were writing books of theory at that time, like uh, Sir James Stewart and, and Great Britain, uh, understood this, and Adam Smith understood it, too. But one of the reasons that he thought that there was no doubt that America would not only revolt, but that it would win the revolution, because we had so many and so much in terms of, of natural resources, uh, not only the, the, the stuff on our farms and our forests, but also 
in our fisheries and um, in a willing population, a growing population, a young population, a population that was actually having babies faster than anybody else in Europe and was living longer. So all of these factors uh, were things that, that tended toward supporting an independence when it came. But as for spurring the independence, it was really just kind of sort of excess and stupidity on the part of the of Britain. Um, the reason for things like the Stamp Act and the Townsend Act were because of America's wealth. America was actually paying its bills on time, perhaps doing better than that. And some people in Parliament got greedy. They thought, well, this is a great source of income for us. And then you keep piling it on and piling it on, and eventually more people take umbrage. Uh, one of my tenets in this book is that revolutions may begin with the poor, but they don't really get going, and they don't really accomplish anything until the rich are involved completely. And, and that never happened in America. Only a very small portion of the rich really participated. But nonetheless, that, that was the core of the revolution, was something that, that both rich and poor could share. One of the things I love about your book is that it you really highlight and bring to life a lot of very important people whose names we see a lot, but people we might not be very familiar with. Uh, who were some of the major power players and movers and shakers in the 18th century American world? Well, John Hancock is, is you know, he was the peacock. I think we might better off calling the peacock than the Hancock, but uh, he was a, 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 a guy who liked it being rich and like flaunting it and, and doing all those sort of things. But but he uh, he threw in his lot with the rebels at a time when almost no one else in his class would do that. And as a matter of fact, he was called a traitor to his class because he wasn't sticking with the rest of the rich. Uh, that he would he would actually go out and he'd, he'd formed a partnership with Sam Adams and others uh, in the Revolutionary Front. And uh, it's difficult to discern at this distance why exactly he did that. It wasn't a guy uh, who uh, took his emotional temperature very much, but it, it, it seemed there was something prickly in him that he decided that, that uh, uh, you know, slavery was all over the language at that time that was used. Uh, there were fewer slaves in New England, of course, than there were in the South, but slavery as a concept was very much on people's mind. And so they translated that idea into economic slavery, and they felt they were in that condition, and that they didn't want to be. And that they didn't know, they also felt that they didn't need to be, that it didn't, that the, uh, the lords, the overlords in London didn't really need them to be so slavish, uh, that there was a way to coexist uh, as, as colonists uh, with uh, all of the supposed rights that they were going to have as, as, as British citizens. And when these rights were denied, when that seemed to be such a sham, just, to, just uh, a piece of paper or a couple of words, and was not being put into practice, then, then the revolt really began in earnest. I know. I, I guess I should talk about a couple of the other people too. Uh, Henry Lawrence, Henry Lawrence down in, in uh, Charleston, uh, was uh, probably one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest man there. And he was—he uh, uh, had pretty much made most of his own fortune. He had been left some money 
but his father was not not that terribly wealthy. And, and Lawrence was a very astute businessman, and he was actually much more conservative than than uh, uh, Hancock was, and for a longer time stuck with the British. Uh, if you had seen him in up through the 1760s, you would say this is likely a real Tory. But towards the end of that period, no. There's a non-importation council that begins in 1769. It was the first consumer boycott we've ever really had in America, and it worked fantastically well. And part of the reason it worked well was because in every one of the colonies, uh, some wealthy people got involved as well as non-wealthy. Now, the wealthy people were actually the ones who were doing most of the importing for themselves, uh, so they had to take part. And there had to be uh, prohibitions on the things that they were using, like uh, uh, or importing, like like uh, uh, chariots and that that kind of thing, chaises, uh, uh, um, or else it, you know you couldn't just simply say you're not allowed to import um, sugar from the Caribbean because they could get by. They might have a, a, a secret stash or something in their house, or the, but they had to participate. And Henry Lauren was able to not only participate, but to chair the council in Charleston. It's the first time that he'd, that he'd gotten involved in, in politics on that level, it, 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 on the side of the rebels. Uh, he'd been involved in the, in the colonial uh, uh, legislature before, but not in an advanced way. So uh, this is another one. And then Robert Morris, as, who, as you know, uh, became involved. But he, and he, too, was a late, Converts up to the time of the uh, of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, uh, he didn't want to sign. He was a delegate, and he was all for accommodation with Great Britain if that could would happen. And what he decided to do when the things came up for a vote was to go behind a petition that uh, just uh, absent himself. Uh, so that others could make the vote for it, because he knew that everybody else wanted it, and he didn't want to vote for it, but he didn't want to go vote against it, so he just absented himself. But after that, he became very zealous in the cause. Uh, he threw everything that he had into it, as a matter of fact. Uh, one of the things that people don't know is after the wonderful crossing of the Delaware, uh, by Washington at the end of 1776. Uh, Robert Morris, who had stayed behind in Philadelphia when most of the other legislators had gone out, uh, sent Washington $50,000 so he could pay bonuses to the troops so they wouldn't go home after this wonderful victory. One of your chapters begins with a really stirring quote, something that stayed with me. They describe the Continental Congress as, quote, a fountainhead of wealth. What is meant by that, and what's the context of it all? Well, first of all, we have to say who made that quote, which was one of the Brown brothers of Providence. And the Browns were very, very astute businessmen. And they understood that as the the fighting part of the revolution got going, uh, that everything that they previously known was thrown into an uproar, uh, their ways of doing business and everything else. And what they needed more than anything else was an assurance that they would get paid if they if they did trade. And that's why they thought that that, uh, that Congress was sitting at the fountainhead of wealth, because they were able to give out contracts. And they were also, in addition to giving out these contracts, they were essentially guaranteeing the contract. 
Congress was taking on the the uh, the, the color of an insurer as well as somebody who's simply giving out the contract. And that's what they needed very badly. You know, they didn't have an Aetna insurance or anything else at that time uh, to be able to, to help them uh, in case the ships got into trouble. But if Congress was willing to guarantee something, that certainly helped to make it the fountainhead of wealth. The war will end in America's favor. Spoiler alert. Uh, but in a lot of ways, America's problems are just beginning. So could you discuss some of the major, I think most importantly, financial problems that America faces after the American Revolution? Well, yeah. I mean, one, one of the things that people don't realize is that the, uh, the time of the American Revolution, let's say from 1775, certainly through to well, at least 10 years after that, maybe into the, into the late 1780s, maybe close to 15 years, the country was in depression. And uh, it was a longer and larger depression than the depression of the 20th century. Uh, so uh, that that's one thing we don't understand. So this was devastating war to us financially and in other ways. First of all, a lot of people had been um, employed either directly or indirectly in the trade with Great Britain. And I don't mean only the dock workers and the sailors, but you also mean uh, the people who were on uh, farms that were producing the kinds of crops that would be sold overseas, all of those people were affected by this. And it was not as simple as being able to substitute uh, customers in the next colony for customers overseas. That didn't happen very easily or overnight. Eventually it did begin to happen, but not right away. So there was there was quite a big problem. At the end of the war, there was a lot of devastation. For example, here in Connecticut, we had many towns, uh, coastal towns that had been burned uh, and that had to be rebuilt. Um, uh, you also had the British attempting to reimpose the condition that had been uh, prior to the war. I discovered a pamphlet written by uh, one of the peers of the realm, Lord Sheffield, uh, which he basically weaponizes Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations, which was published in 1776. This pamphlet comes out in 1782, and it's really a battle plan for how you're going to resubjugate the American colonies by means of trade. We're going to flood them with cheap credit, we're going to flood them with cheap uh, goods, and uh, th- then, uh, you know, they'll buy and they'll become dependent upon us, both for the credit and for the merchandise. And this is, in large measure, uh, it worked pretty well. And some people were really trapped in it. For example, the Brown of Providence uh, uh, got called on, their loans got called too quickly for them, and they lost a lot of money. So uh, this was a, a deliberate attempt by the British to sort of resubjugate us financially. And the, part of the problem was that these rules were so wonderfully written uh, that the French decided that they would adopt them more as well, and so did the Spanish. And the French and Spanish had been trading with us pretty freely in a sort of open trade during the war, and now that went away. So the, the kind of thing that, that some of the rich people in America had hoped for, which was basically free trade and being able to send out America's bounty uh, to other places and trade for what we wanted, that was constrained after the war for a long time. So it was very difficult to get back to any sense of normal. And uh, also in that period, I, I call the period from uh, 
end of the Battle of Yorktown through to uh, the inauguration of Washington, which is a period of seven and a half years. It's a real interregnum. It's a free-for-all. There's so many government entities involved, uh, city government, state government, a very weak federal government. Uh, they're all they're working at cross-purposes, and the cross-purposes don't help the economy. Uh, the economy sort of revived almost in spite of all of that, uh, as it does often, as, you know, not immediately after the war, but usually five to ten years after a war, things are getting much better, and that's what was happening. But it really needs to be systematized, and that's what the Constitutional Convention set out to do. Uh, there had been so many instances of things going off half-cocked. Uh, the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 was really a wild one, and uh, it produced uh, some wild overly democratic things that that, that, that punished uh, people who made loans, uh, that punished people who had property, and, and, and things like that, that really could not stand for very long. And you had things like the state of Massachusetts uh, being very stupid about needing to pay back their share of the national debt. They decided they'd try and pay it off in five years, which was a dumb idea, because it, nobody insisted on it except maybe the governor, and then that produces Shays Rebellion, which is such a major, major uh, thing in, in helping people decide what they're going to do at the Constitutional Convention. The thing they wanted to do was establish a system so that any one naughty part of it that's deciding to pull away or do something silly, uh, whether, it, whether it's a... Uh, the House of Representatives or, or a state legislature or a single actor as a president or something like that. All of these people have to be held in balance together so that nobody can can uh, upend the ship of state. And that, that's what the Constitution is really about. Today we debate a lot about policy, politics, and plans for really solving America's big problems. Uh, who were the major contributors in terms of making proposals to solving America's financial problems after the war? Well, uh, most, of, most of it came from Hamilton, but a lot of what Hamilton set out to do and what we celebrate him for are things that, that were obvious and needed done and that almost any smart guy in his position uh, would have had to come up with, such as a national mint and a national bank. Uh, but Hamilton had some specific ideas that he wanted, and uh, there were people who opposed them. At this long distance, they all looked like they've worked pretty well, but there were some alternatives. For example, he wanted to not pay off the national debt. He wanted to pay the interest on it, if he could, um, from whatever the government's income was. But he didn't want to pay it down because he thought that the shared obligation was holding the states together, and that this was a good idea. Also, he wanted to use the incoming money for other projects. And he also did not want to have any, any real taxes, no direct taxes. He wanted indirect taxes, and if possible, no taxes at all. What he wanted to have were tariffs, and uh, those would provide income for the government and allow the government to expand and, and become solidified. But he fairly soon found out uh, that that wasn't enough. After the first few years, there wasn't enough income being produced by the tariffs, 
and so they had to try an excise tax. And he tried one on whiskey production, and uh, that was in some ways somewhat disastrous as well. So not everything worked out, but but things were were tried. Um, on the other side of the coin, which represented mostly by uh, in our mind today by Thomas Jefferson, but really has to do with Jefferson and with Madison and with the third member of their triumvirate, who was Albert Gallatin, who was the who became the Secretary of the Treasury in the Jefferson and Madison administration, and who before that in the 1790s was the floor leader in the, in the House of Representatives after 1791 when uh, uh, Madison sort of semi-retired. Um, these three guys came up with a completely different approach. For one thing, they wanted to pay down the debt right away because they said its existence is actually hurting the poor people and it's hurting those who fought the revolution. The second thing is they were not convinced, at least in the 1790s, that you needed something like the Bank of the United States uh, or that the Bank of the United States had to be organized in the way it was, which was the, the shares were uh, priced initially at $400, which is more than an American would probably make in three or four years. And the board of directors was going to be composed solely of people who had bought big blocks of shares. Um, 20% of the bank was owned by the government, but it didn't seem to do much for it. And so this this became a bank of the wealthy rather than simply a bank of the United States, even though that was its name. And there were other ways of doing things. So, for example, at the time that that bank was set up, there was another much smaller bank and it was set up in Boston. It wasn't that much smaller. It, uh, they had floated 100,000 shares at a price of $8 a share. Now, everybody could buy an $8 a share, and many, many people did. The bank was very widely owned, but it came up with $800,000. And then there were two important differences. Instead of being the fat cats who were in control of the bank and who were basically loaning to one another and to their friends, uh, in this bank in Boston, the directors had to include that 20 percent of directors were chosen by the state of massachusetts to help out the poor and to look after their interest and 25 percent of the deposits and the amount that they had set aside for loan was also dedicated to the small fry so the farmer who wanted to get a loan for his next crop or somebody who wanted to expand their small business those were the loans that that 20 percent or 25% was, was there. Now, that didn't happen with the Bank of U.S. So there were alternative ways to do things. And uh, Hamilton's prevailed, and we we think of him as the father of American finance, and indeed he was. But uh, what we don't seem to know is were there any alternative ways to do things? And um, was it as effective as it could have been? And was it as democratic as it could be? The answer to the last one is certainly not, but eventually uh, uh, more democracy came into it and a different way of thinking. So that when Jefferson took over from Adams in 1801, everything shifted. Uh, that the national debt then was $83 million. Uh, it had been $77 million when Hamilton had started. So it continued to climb. And in the first year, uh, Jefferson, Hamilton, uh, Jeff, sorry, Jefferson, Madison, and Gallatin uh, put together a scheme to take $10 million, which was the government's income at that time, uh, 
per year and take $8 million of it and pay down the debt. They're paying down a tenth of the debt immediately. And inside of 10 years, they had paid down uh, from $83 million to $42 million, even as the country continued to grow at about the same rate as it had during the Hamilton era. And even though they were also paying for the huge uh, Louisiana Purchase, which is $15 million. So this is a startling financial accomplishment that we really don't know much about because we're so involved with, with celebrating Hamilton. But there are other aspects of, of the finance thing uh, that are there to be celebrated. Uh, Ham, Hamilton, uh, for example, really um, didn't think that little people could do anything in the economy. He was the original trickle-down guy. You know, we'll give the make the money available to the people up at the top, and they'll hire others, and, and that way the money will get out to the economy. A trickle down was was much more likely to occur 200 years ago than it is now because the difference in the vast number of of numbers of people uh, are available, so that one wealthy person is not going to be able to support a thousand others. Uh, it no longer works that way. Um, but in Hamilton's time, it, it was a little nearer to the truth, but it still wasn't the only truth. Uh, so what Jefferson and, and his crew did was they also they redirected the government's income uh, towards infrastructure, where things like the Cumberland Road, uh, towards canals, towards uh, dredging harbors, those kind of things that would increase uh, commercial traffic within the country. And, this, and this, the second thing they wanted to do and got started on doing was, was to throw government money towards education, towards educating the populace. And these things uh, built the country in a way slightly different than that of Hamilton. Hamilton was building up uh, the financial infrastructure, uh, creating a lot of wealthy people. But wealth also comes from the lower classes having enough wherewithal so that they're not spending their entire lives uh, simply getting and spending. They can do more. They can build themselves. You know, it's the guy who who has uh, one blacksmith shop being able to open a second one and then a third one. This is how people become wealthy in America. So um, that owes as much to the Jefferson-Madison-Gallatin trio as it does to Hamilton. How does this book, in your opinion, it's on the shelves, available now. How does it help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, I think we got a more nuanced understanding of of, of, of the revolution. It was not simply about uh, about battles uh, and about generals, but it's also about other people. Uh, some of them practicing what I call economic patriotism, which is is putting their their credit and their money and their wherewithal on the line. Uh, and risking all of that, just as others, the soldiers in the front line were risking their lives. And all of this is part of our heritage. And, and we need to have a, a, a larger, uh, uh, deeper, more nuanced view than, than just uh, things that look good on statues. Now, that's really my message, and and, um, and readers have responded to that. They've told us, told me in in various ways uh, through through uh, reviews posted and in person uh, during my lectures and things like that. That this is this has really been eye opening for them, and I'm delighted about that. Tom Shackman, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you, Brady. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.